And what a morning we've had already. We've had two very well done and impressive messages already conveyed this morning through the music and through the table. Now we get to feast on the word. We are blessed indeed. That being said, (laughs) have you ever worked really hard to make somebody happy? And no matter what you do, they just keep finding reasons to be unhappy. Y'all don't don't nudge each other now. Don't do that. Yeah, you can say amen. I'm up here, so I can't get nudged. So. <laughs> or, or you're trying so hard, and then they tell you that what you're doing is not helping at all. That's not helping. You're like, oh. They say they're cold, so you turn the heat up. Then they say it's too hot. So you turn the air on and they say, I told you I was cold. Now, now quit that nudging now. I see you over, Steve. I see that over. <laughs> this is a little bit different, but it's similar. When, when Amanda was in labor with Hannah, we lived out in the boondocks and crazy roads we had to drive on. And she was in hard labor. We didn't know that at the time, but uh, She'd be like, hurry up, hurry up. So I'd get on the guy. She'd be like, slow down, slow down, I'm getting sick. And I'm like, okay, now it's a curve. Slow down, speed up, slow down, speed up. A little bit different situation, but uh, yeah. So, or, or somebody's in a bad mood and you try to cheer them up, but you just make them grumpier by your efforts. Sound like y'all know what I'm talking about. Mom, have your kids ever fit this description? Kids, have mom ever fit this description? Or dad, for that matter, huh? I would guess that at one time or another, we've all fit that description, right? Sometimes we just aren't happy, and no matter what, we ain't going to be, right? And sometimes it seems that there are some people who seem to kind of live there. They stay there all the time. They're not happy unless they're unhappy. You know what I'm talking about? Eeyore type of folks, right? I guess I should have just stayed in bed. Nothing ever works out for me. And that's where they get stuck. I've been going through the Chronicles of Narnia books again, and Puddleglum, if you're familiar with Silver Chair, he's kind of that kind of character. He's a great character. Always negative, always expecting the worst, and communicating that to the people around him. Well, it can be pretty frustrating to be around those people, can it? Hard when you can't please them, or they just refuse to be pleased. You ever pop off at somebody like that and just let them have it. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of it. This is all the time. You're always like this. Well, today, we see some people just like that. And we get to see Jesus' Jesus response to them. And let me tell you, when Jesus speaks the truth in love, He's going to let them have it. And probably us too. So, Let's look at, we've got a long passage today. It's Matthew 11, verses 7 through 24. So, if you would, please stand and venerate the Word of God and the God who inspired this Word. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? 
Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Let's pray. God, I pray that we would be able to receive the hard words. We do love and enjoy and just wrap ourselves around the better word. And we cling to that word as you speak to us, this hard word today. Move us, Holy Spirit, to repentance. Wherever we may be and whatever we may need, God, bring it about through our repentance today. Holy Spirit, teach us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <laughs> I heard some, mm, while I was reading there, there's a people, mm, oh, man, oof, oof, wow. And that's where we're at today. Um, some, some texts are amen texts, some texts are oh man texts. You know, oh man. This is an old man text today. So as we move into this passage today, we have to make sure we set the stage, understand what's going on here. Jesus has just sent His 12 disciples out for the first time. Um, and that was the instructions and exhortations that we saw in chapter 10. We spent a lot of time in chapter 10 for good reason. Now then last week we looked at verses 1 through 15. And we saw John's disciples, two of John the Baptist's disciples, coming to ask Jesus if He was indeed the Messiah or if they should look and wait for another. Jesus didn't rebuke John, but He verified His own Messiahship by calling John's attention to the miracles Jesus was doing and the fact that the gospel was being proclaimed to the poor. And Jesus ended His words to John with verse 6, which said, "...and blessed is the one who was not offended by Me." And last week we talked about being honest about our doubts and bringing them to Jesus. And Jesus not rebuking John for that, but then going on to praise John. And we'll see some of that again today as we go back through there. In other words, with this, if you're not offended by me, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. In other words there, John, you're happy if you're not led to disbelief by me leaving you in your tough situation, even to the point of death which is what will ultimately happen to John. Jesus then went on to talk to the people about who they thought John was, and then He described who John really was, 
and how, we, how, how John fit into the prophetic timeline of God. And Jesus didn't chide or shake his head at John, but rather said that John was not a reed shaken by the wind or a king-pleasing, soft-clothes-wearing person, but was indeed a prophet, even more than a prophet, one who fulfilled the only one who fulfilled Malachi's prophecy of Elijah, who would go before the Messiah and prepare the way before him. And Jesus even went as far as to say that of those born of women, there has not been anyone greater than John the Baptist. So that's where we're at. And all that we've just looked at and looked back over is in 7 through 11. So I'm going to read those and then kind of put some pieces together from last week into this week. So as they went away, Jesus began, they being John's disciples, as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So, John had been promised, and they didn't really understand who John was. Okay? They liked John. They went out into the desert to hear John preach and to be baptized by John. And John was probably right before this point in, in the Gospel of Matthew. John was probably way more famous than Jesus was. People just really liked John. And they're like, wow, wow. But they didn't understand who he was. They missed him. John was different. He was not the norm. Okay, he wore camel's hair and a belt and ate locusts and wild honey. And people were like, this is neat. This is really cool. We like John. We're going to get back. Have you been baptized by John? I have. I'm going to go again there today because we like, it's just kind of this thing. It's like, hey, let's all just go back out and talk to John. And everybody needs to be baptized by John. Even the scribes and Pharisees came. And John called them out and said, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, you brood of vipers? And they're like, what? No, we're the religious folks. We're the good folks. He's like, no, nah, I know who you are. And the axe is already laid to the root of the tree. And God's wrath is coming. And they're like, okay, John, baptize me. And they missed him. They didn't understand who he was. And he had come preaching a very simple, single message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they missed it. By and large, they missed it. And... Jesus pumps John up and say, says John did exactly what John was sent to do. John was exactly who he was supposed to be. And even rotten in jail there with his doubts, John is great. Matter of fact, of those born of women, there's no one greater than John. But then there's the end of that verse 11 there. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And we didn't really cover that last week, and that's where we're going to start today. Start now in, in the passage. We already started. But. So what's that mean? Now again, remember what John and Jesus' main message was. Repent for the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of the heavens is at hand. That was their main message. Well, what's that mean? It means change the way you think. Change what you are doing. Why? Because the kingdom of the heavens... 
God's plan, God's purposes, God's man is here. And John was one of God's men, but he wasn't God's man. Jesus was God's man. Jesus was the God-man and He was the purpose of everything that John was doing. John was not the purpose. And as great as John was, something better was coming. Things are changing. So John's saying, you better repent. Because things are changing and they're changing rapidly, so you need to change. Well, they went and got wet and kept doing the things they had always done. Well, John was the greatest of natural men, but now there's a new way to be human, Jesus says. There's a supernatural way. In the natural way, nobody was greater than John, but something has come about now that exalts even the least in this kingdom above the greatest in the former kingdom. Which means there's a change in the focus of the kingdom. God is doing new things, better things, greater things with the kingdom at hand. And so, those who are a part of this new kingdom, which is really the old kingdom, and they misunderstood it, but those who are moving with this new kingdom are in a better place than even the best of men in the natural realm. Things, listen to me, things are getting supernatural. Now, with Jesus on the earth more than ever before, and with God's kingdom tangible now, you could put your hand, hands at that time on Jesus. You could touch God in the flesh. And with God's kingdom tangible, men in His kingdom are better than the best. There's a new normal and the possibilities have expanded and the potential has been drastically increased. That's why Jesus would say, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. And everybody went, what? Those are the most righteous people we know. And Jesus says, I know. And there's something greater. There's something better. Now that God is among, with, and for His men, these men, even the least of them, are leagues above and beyond natural men. Be sure you hear Jesus saying here, things are changing. And we see some of this change in the next verse, which is really pretty controversial and is one of my favorite verses of all time. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. And the violent take it by force. Hmm. Now what in the world does that mean? The kingdom, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. That's quite a statement. So we just, let's just start with it. Let's just start into it. There's a time stamp at the beginning, right? From the days of John the Baptist until now, while Jesus was speaking. So from the time when John started his ministry, out in the desert proclaiming, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, from then until now, as Jesus was speaking. Not now, now, then now. Are you with me? So from the days that John started his ministry until the time that Jesus was talking. So there's the time stamp. That's pretty straightforward. It's easy enough. Now it gets interesting. During that time, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. Hmm. Now there are literally, actually, two different ways that this could be interpreted. It could be that the kingdom of heaven is being affected violently by violent men. 
Or it can be taken as the kingdom of heaven is violently affecting the environment around it and violent, active people are entering that kingdom, taking it for their own. The verb tense, which is usually just so precise in Greek, is not precise here. It can be taken as either. What did Jesus mean exactly? I don't know. Both can be right. We know that John was suffering under the hands of violent people, and we know that Jesus will suffer under the hands of violent people. And we know that establishment of the kingdom of the heavens is a declaration of war against the kingdom of darkness and only those who are fighting can partake in that kingdom. So which is it? What is Jesus saying? Again, I don't know and I don't have a bit of problem saying both are true. Knowing that Jesus could be talking with some double meaning, He's pretty smart, this God in the flesh. He mastered the language, I'm sure. He was a great teacher and preacher. And both are supported by other passages in the Bible. Both ways. So, violent men are violently opposing the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of heaven is violently opposing the kingdom of darkness. And those in that heavenly kingdom advance only by violent force. And this is not war, guns, fighting fists. In other words, they advance with much striving, fighting, battling, passion, and fire. John truly fit that mode, didn't he? Now this is not a call to a crusade to forcibly convert or punish non-believers. That's not what Jesus is saying here. I know that for sure. But it is a call to fight the kingdom of darkness. And there's more on this in application. But keep that in mind as we move into the next two verses, which we covered last week. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. And again, having looked at this last week, we'll just review quickly to set our context today. Jesus gives us another time stamp of sorts by framing what John is doing in the plan of God. He says, John is the penultimate prophet. Anybody familiar with that word penultimate? It's one of my favorites. Penultimate. It's the next to the last. It's not the ultimate, it's the one before the ultimate. I used to misuse it all the time, thinking that it meant the top of the top. Well, it doesn't. It means the one before the top. I'm like, this is the penultimate point that I could make. And everybody's like, well, what's the next one? I'm like, I don't know. I thought that was, thought that was it. <laughs> penultimate means the second to the last. The one before the final one. And all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. There was a plan in place that will culminate ultimately in Jesus who embodied what the law and the prophets foretold. He said, I came to fulfill them. So he's the ultimate. John was the last of those pointing to Jesus as the ultimate, the fulfillment of all the prophecies and even the law itself. And Jesus says this means that John was Elijah, foretold of by Malachi, who was the predecessor of the Messiah, John was. The Jews would literally leave an empty seat for Elijah at their feasts, hoping that he would come and bring the age of the Messiah into existence. And they still do, because they don't know that their Messiah has come. Jesus says, Elijah has come, and now I'm here. The, the The predecessor and the Messiah. And Jesus says, it's happening. It's happening now. And he asked them, are you on board? 
Well, some of them are, Jesus says in verse 15, and some of them are not. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, this may seem innocuous, but it is big. If Ed Sullivan were here, he'd say it's really big. It's really big. Yeah, some of you are like, who is Ed Sullivan and what is that all about? <laughs> Got to go back to the 60s for Ed Sullivan. That was before my time, so. This is big. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus is saying, if you have ears, listen to what I'm saying. I want somebody, everybody, everybody look at me. Okay? I'm like, oh, it's all <laughs> Take your hands and put them on the side of your head. Everybody do it. If you don't do it, I'm going to point you out and make fun of you. What's on the side of your head? Everybody's got ears? Okay, take them off. Everybody's got ears on the side of their head in here today, right? Now, I understand that may not always be the case. Some people may not. So you got ears. So is Jesus just asking people to listen to him? The answer is yes and no. Jesus will use this phrase quite a bit moving forward, especially when we get into chapter 13 and the parables of the kingdom there. So what's it mean then? It means that not everybody who has ears has ears. You're like, what? Are you with me? This movement of the kingdom is drawing lines, very definitive lines between those who are in it and those who are not. If you remember, Jesus said He didn't come to bring peace but a sword. Sword, I said. I don't know where that came from. He said that he came to set families against one another. Parents and children. And back in Micah, remember we said, even the one laying in your arms. That's the vibe here. If you have ears, then hear. If you don't, well, guess what? You're not going to hear what he's saying. You can't hear because you don't have the ears that you need. You don't have the equipment that you need to do so. This is a new kingdom. This is a new way of doing things. This is a spiritual kingdom, and those who are not spiritual cannot hear. So people are like, well, I could hear him, so I think I'm all right. And he said, listen, I'm listening. And they're missing him off the map. It's going to be kind of like Jesus is telling private jokes the rest of his ministry. And not everybody's going to get them. But he will call on those who do hear him with the spiritual equipment that he's given them. He's going to call on them to do what he's saying and to pay close attention to certain things with this phrase. When you see this phrase, listen to me church, those of you who are born again, when you see this phrase, pay attention. Jesus is trying to communicate something specific and important when he says this. And not everybody's going to get it. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. For those who can, pay attention. This is important. This separates life from death. This separates those who are gods, who belong to God, from those who do not. And Jesus is saying to those who are His, perk up and listen. And to everybody else, He's literally saying, you can't hear what I'm saying. And this phrase here could be pointing back to what he just said or it could be pointing forward to what he's about to say or he could be talking about all of it. So, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Verses 16 and 17. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, we played the flute for you. 
and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. The best way to start this out, I'm just going to, I'm just going to read John MacArthur's explanation of this because it's so stinking good. Whereunto shall I liken this generation? MacArthur says, that phrase is a very interesting phrase. That question is a very interesting question. For in Jewish literature, in the Midrash, which is the sort of the compilation of Jewish traditional teaching, that is the most common formula for introducing a parable. He goes on to say, Now all good teachers know that you have to teach in word pictures or in analogies or similes or metaphors or figures of speech to make people understand things. MacArthur goes on. And that was true with the rabbis as well. And so they would commonly say this phrase, to what is the matter like? And that is the most common phrase in rabbinic teaching for introducing a parable. Or how can I liken this point to something in life that will make it clear to you what is it like? And Jesus is then, in a very traditional rabbinic way, launching Himself into a parable. Whereunto shall I liken this generation? How can I illustrate what this generation is like? End of quote. So, Jesus is using a common teaching technique to introduce a parable, a story or word picture to convey an important truth. And the truth is about those who are seeing what's going on around them as the kingdom of heaven is being manifested before them. They're like a bunch of kids who can't be pleased or who won't be pleased. It was common for children of this time to gather in the marketplace in the middle of everything. Their parents were at, you know, doing their shopping or doing their selling or whatever, and all the kids would gather, and a lot of times what they would play would be wedding or funeral. Because they'd see the processions of the weddings coming through town, they'd see the processions of the funerals coming through town, and when they got together, like, hey, let's play wedding. And when they played wedding, they'd play the flute and everybody'd dance. Everybody was happy. When they played funeral, everybody would mourn and somebody would be singing a dirge. And the kids would walk through the marketplace like they were having a funeral. And the kids would mimic these things in their play. And these kids, in these verses, they're playing wedding and or funeral. The kingdom is like that. And some of their playmates aren't playing along at all. Hey, let's play wedding. I don't want to play wedding. Let's play funeral then. I don't want to play funeral either. What do you want to do? I don't want to do nothing. Well, come on, let's go play. I don't want to play. And Jesus is saying that's what this generation is like. You can't please them. You can't make them happy. You can't do anything right in their sight. They just want to be where they are, doing what they're doing, not playing your game. We played wedding. You didn't want to play wedding. We played funeral. You didn't want to do that either. Nothing satisfied this generation. You can't make them happy. They're just a bunch of spoil sports, sticks in the mud, who are just miserable where they are and don't want to move. Jesus says, that's what you're like. You can't be pleased. You're like a bunch of immature kids who are missing everything that's going on around them because you don't want to change. Why would he say that? Verses 18 and 19. For John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. 
Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. You guys can't be pleased, Jesus says. John shows up announcing the nearness of the kingdom and he's an ascetic, purposefully not eating and drinking. He's fasting. He's not partaking of the pleasures of the world. He's eating locusts and wild honey. And you say, he's got a demon. We don't want the kingdom if that's what it looks like. Then Jesus comes, he's eating and drinking. He's living like kind of a normal life as God in the flesh, just enjoying the day-to-day events and the provision that comes his way. He even attends wedding feasts. He reclines at table with tax collectors and sinners and they look at him and say, Look at him! He's a glutton and a drunkard. He's friends with those sinners he hangs out with. And if that's what the kingdom of heaven looks like, I don't want anything to do with it. They can't be pleased. You don't want the kingdom. You don't really want anything except what you have and what you see right in front of you. What you're used to and what you can control. They missed John, they're missing Jesus, and they're passing their judgments on both of them. Elevating themselves above the both of them and saying, my kingdom is better than your kingdom. Because if it looks like that or that, I don't want anything to do with it. Yawn and yuck, they say. No thanks. Now what about that last sentence? Yet, wisdom is justified by her deeds. What about that? You guys are passing your judgments based on what you want and what you think, but time will tell. Wisdom, true wisdom, is justified, shown to be right and good by her deeds. Those who do the right things will end up being shown to be the really wise. The people who are truly citizens of the kingdom will be shown to be real, legitimate citizens by what they are doing. And what was it that they were called to do? Repent. Their deeds will show them to be who they really are. You guys, you sticks in the mud, you kids who can't be pleased, you pass your judgments and you're going to miss the kingdom. The true kingdom citizens, well, they'll be doing kingdom things. They're going to be repenting. And they will be revealed in the end. And now watch this. There's a definite turn in verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Now Jesus begins to get very pointed here. There is a shift here, a dramatic shift. He's been really hard up to this point on the religious elite, the scribes, the Pharisees. But here he turns his attention in a negative way to all those who have seen his miracles and have not repented. It says he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. He spent most of his ministry time in Galilee, near the lake in that region, right? We've said that several times. And here he begins to denounce, which literally means to harshly criticize or to upbraid. He begins to do that to those cities where he had done so many mighty works. Why? Because of what they had done? No. But because of what they did not do. He began to upbraid them because they did not repent. He's calling for an understanding, a right response to all that He has done. They've missed it. They've come for the show. And it hasn't changed their lives at all. And there are going to be consequences. They did not change their thinking. They did not change their deeds after seeing the kingdom 
come down in the form of a man who vanquished illness from the region, basically, who raised dead people, who walked on water, who calmed storms, and they said, that's neat. I got something to do. Show's over, I'm going home. They didn't change after seeing God come down and show the kingdom in visible, tangible ways. They just refused to be pleased. They refused to change and now here come the consequences. And they are not pretty. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. He starts with the word woe. And it's not like woe. No. Woe! To describe what's coming upon them because of their unwillingness and or their inability to repent. A woe is a curse. A woe is a promise of doom, a promise of coming judgment. Jesus says judgment is coming upon these people in these towns. And He calls them out pretty specifically. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. We've got a map. I don't know if you'll be able to see this or not. There's a Sea of Galilee up there, up north. You can see Bethsaida is on the eastern side of the lake. Capernaum, which we'll get to in a minute, is on the west side. And then Chorazin is kind of up there in the north. They call that the golden triangle of Jesus' ministry and His miracles because that's where He spent the bulk of His time. That's where He did the bulk of His miracles. And it didn't change Him at all. So He says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! And He'll say it to Capernaum in verse 23. These three cities, the people in these cities saw so much of who Jesus was and what He did. And He says that if the mighty works that He had done in them had been done in Tyre and Sidon, those towns would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. Now those two towns, Tyre and Sidon, I don't have a map of that, they were especially seen by Jews as pagan cities. And what evidenced their paganness was the wrath of God was shown upon them through woes and judgments of their own. Several prophets in the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, and Amos, mention Tyre and Sidon specifically and give warnings of God's wrath coming upon them. And it does. They literally get wiped out. But Jesus says, even these ultra-pagan cities would have repented in sackcloth and ashes if they had seen all that Chorazin and Bethsaida had seen. And so, Jesus says, when the final judgment comes in the last day, Tyre and Sidon, the bywords of paganness to these Jews, will get off easier than Chorazin and Bethsaida do. Good Jewish folks living in a good Jewish town, doing good Jewish things. And Jesus says, whoa, it's going to be worse for you than it will be for Tyre and Sidon. Because these Jewish cities, these people in these Jewish cities did not repent when they saw the work of the Messiah. So they're going to suffer a fate worse than the pagans. Oh, man. And then there's Capernaum too, as we finish. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. 
Now, we've said several times through our study in Matthew that Capernaum was Jesus' town. That was his home place. That was where he was rooted and grounded as he went around. He would always come back to Capernaum and his town. He stayed there a lot, it seems, and they would have seen him do and teach and just hang out and eat and drink. So many of his disciples had come from Capernaum. And sadly, the Jewish folk in this Jewish town felt like they were just going to be exalted to heaven. This makes me think of the paradigm of modernity. Anybody familiar with modern thought? Modernity, which would have been around in the early early to mid-1900s, this is when people were astonished at the inventions, the technology and prosperity that they were experiencing. Sound familiar? Then, the modern man with a modern paradigm back in the early to mid-1900s, just in amazement of how good things are. We're just going to be exalted up to heaven. That's literally what they thought. They thought that they were going to usher in heaven on earth. Earth was going to become a utopia because we as people were just getting better and better and better and better. That was their thought. Then something happened. A couple world wars. And the 20th century would become the bloodiest and most deadly century in the history of the world. So much for modern thinking that things are just getting better and better. That's what I see when I see Capernaum. They're just like, man, things are just getting better. Look, look at all these people that are being healed. Look at all this good stuff. Man, God just must really like us. And we're just going to walk into heaven maybe with our next step because God's just going to bring it down and it's going to be right here. No Capernaum. No America. You will not be exalted to heaven. Instead, Jesus says, they will be brought down to Hades. You will go to hell. Why? Because they had seen things no one had ever seen. And yet they didn't repent. They stayed the same! They didn't allow these miracles and this teaching to change anything about them. And Jesus goes as far as saying that if the city of Sodom had seen all that Capernaum had seen, Sodom would still be around. Now, just in case you need a quick refresher, let me give it to you in a capsule here. Sodom was where the homosexual men wanted to rape angels. So there's that. He would condemn Sodom and Gomorrah also for not being hospitable later in Ezekiel. And Jesus says it will be more tolerable for Sodom. Sodom on the day of judgment than it will be for Capernaum, the quiet, lovely Jewish fishing town where people refuse to repent upon seeing the works of God in the flesh. More tolerable for Sodom than for Capernaum. Jesus says Sodom would have repented, but Capernaum would not. What about us? What about you? What about me? Of course, that brings us to application. Three R's. Rejoice, revolt, and repent. Rejoice, revolt, and repent. First application point is rejoice. In light of all that we've seen, 
Jesus compared His hearers to children who wouldn't rejoice or mourn when their buddies were fluting and dirging. I don't know if those are verbs or not, but... They just wouldn't let themselves be satisfied. Nothing pleased them. And those hearers in Jesus' day wouldn't let themselves see what God was doing through John or even through Jesus in showing off the kingdom of heaven. And so they just smugly sat and missed out on what God was doing. Woe to you, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, because you wouldn't rejoice. And you're like, well, I mean, they had Jesus in their midst. Surely it wouldn't be the same for us, would it? Yeah, it would. Have you seen the works of God in your life? Have you heard a better word spoken over your life? Have you heard a call to repent? To freedom? Freedom from sin? Freedom from bondage to the world? Freedom from oppression from the systems of the world? Because if you have, you should rejoice! We get to be included in God's plan and purposes in this world and in the next world. God Himself has entrusted His Holy Spirit to us. The same Spirit that was in Jesus is in us. And we sit on the sidelines and we don't want to play God games. Woe is me. My life is so hard. My life is so bad. Jesus says, Rejoice, for the kingdom of heaven is within you. Within you. Fear not, little flock. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. We should be on the roof shouting that. Even with the pitch and the rain. Thank God for the rain, huh? We get to be included in God's plan. And God has given His very Spirit to us to live in us and through us. This is worth rejoicing in. When things are good, when things are bad, when they're hard, when they're easy, and everything in between, weddings, funerals, and everything in between, Paul would say to the Philippians in Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord always! Again, I'll say rejoice. And note the medium of rejoicing that Paul exhorts his readers to rejoice in. In the Lord. He would say in Romans 8, right, that once we're in Him, nothing can separate us from Him. So rejoice in that. And again, I'll say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. And the answer to that question is yes. If ever there was a reason to rejoice It's that we as God's people are in Christ. We're in His kingdom. We're in His plan. We're in His purpose. And as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we have every right and reason to rejoice. Simply because of who Jesus is. Simply because of what He's done, what He is doing, and what He will do.
Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. He is our joy and our cause for rejoicing. So we, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, if we are, always have reason to rejoice. We cannot be those who cannot be pleased. Well, you don't know my situation. I don't have to. I don't have to. I'd like to. Let's sit down and talk about it. But whatever situation you're in, rejoice in the Lord. That's a command. And what a wonderful command. I'm telling you, be happy. I don't want to be happy. Then you don't have ears to hear. Rejoice. That's application point one. Revolt. This is my favorite one. We have to aggressively throw off the course of the world. We have to aggressively confront the world and its system and pursue Christ and His life. We cannot be complacent or ho-hum in our pursuit of Him. Jesus said that the kingdom of heaven suffered violence. And we said it could mean a couple of different things. Either it was being persecuted or that it was inflicting sharp opposition to the world system around it. Well, listen to me, church. As we rejoice, we also have to revolt. We have to, have to, have to be those who are at odds with the world and its systems. We cannot go along to get along. We cannot compromise truth for the sake of not offending someone. Now we speak that truth in love and we're not going out just trying to provoke people to make them mad. That's going to happen. Jesus said that's going to happen. If they hated me, they'll hate you. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Don't go out there and try to get yourself hated and persecuted. Just speak the truth in love. And as you do so, there is not a more revoltful, not revolting, revoltful thing that you could do then stand up in the midst of the world and say, Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king is coming and he's bringing judgment. And if you don't escape that judgment, there are going to be consequences. I'm afraid we as the citizens of the kingdom of heaven are so in love with the systems of the world. And we can't be. We've got to revolt. We've got to throw off the shackles and the harness that the world has placed on us. John would say it this way in 1 John 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Listen, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is a call to revolt. This is a call for violence. And again, not physical violence. I'm not telling you to go decapitate people who aren't Christians. Jesus wasn't saying that. He was saying, look the world in the eye and say, I hate you. Not people. Don't do that to people. Do that to the devil and his forces and his systems that are in place in this world to entice us into the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. Listen, you are being indoctrinated every day 
When you open up a phone and you start scrolling, indoctrination. When you turn on a TV, indoctrination. When you turn on the music you listen to, indoctrination. When you see the billboards, when you walk in the department stores and they've got them arranged in such a way that they make you want things, indoctrination. And it's time, past time, for the people of God to stand up and say, no. We are revolting against this world and its system. We are not comfortable with it. We are not at peace with it. We are at war with the world and its system. I do not love the world or the things of the world because if I do, the love of the Father is not in me. So revolt. Jesus is looking for passionate people who love Him so much that it causes them to hate the world and its systems. I'm afraid we're just too comfortable. You want to play wedding? Nah. You want to play funeral? I just just as soon be comfortable on my couch and let the world go on and leave me alone. And Jesus says, revolt. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. Revolt. Rejoice, revolt. And finally, the point of all points. Repent. Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum evoked the woe of Jesus because they did not repent. If you ever take a trip to Israel, which I have not, don't really know that I want to, but go to Chorazin. Go to Bethsaida. Go to Capernaum. They are ruins. They are destroyed. And that is just a small foretaste of the judgment that will ultimately fall on those people who lived there in Jesus' day. Final judgment awaits them and it will be horrendous. Worse than destruction. Remember that a few weeks ago? Eternal punishment. Why? Because they did not repent. even after seeing Jesus in the flesh, doing things only God could or would do, they wouldn't repent. What about you and me? What have we seen God do that has not changed our minds or our lives? Remember John and Jesus' main statements? In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Change your thoughts. Change your actions. Change your affections. Because there's a new way of thinking. A new way of acting. A new way of feeling. And a new way of doing. That was the command. That was the main point of the ministries of John and Jesus. Repent! And you know what I think our problem is? I think we see that as a one-time deal. Oh, I repented when I was five. Let me challenge you. Repent. You say, well, I done got saved. Repent! Well, Jesus adopted me. Repent! Martin Luther when nailing his 95 theses to the castle door of Wittenberg, started them with thesis number one. 
You know what thesis number one was? When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, He intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. Yes! When we stop repenting, we stop walking with Jesus. When we think we've got it all figured out, when we think we don't need to change, when we start looking at other people and pointing at them and saying, boy, they're really stupid. They should be as smart as me. I repented. Then we're missing the heart of Jesus and the purpose of the Christian life. That David Mathis, writing for Desiring God, says this, All of the Christian life is repentance. Turning from sin and trusting in the good news that Jesus saves sinners aren't merely a one-time inaugural experience, but the daily substance of Christianity. The gospel is for every day and every moment. Repentance is to be the Christian's continual posture. End of quote. The Jews of Jesus' day thought they had reached a level where they did not need to change. It was everybody else that needed to change. They didn't need to change or question or challenge anything in their lives. And let me tell you what, church, if you're there today, repent! Because when you get to that spot, there's no room for conviction. There's no room for improvement. And the very process of sanctification that God has us in the midst of is a process of change. From this to this. Constant, consistent change. If you're not changing, you're walking in disobedience to your Lord and to your Master. He's calling you to repentance. Will you be like a little kid in the marketplace who says, Nah, I don't need that. Y'all go on. Flute, dirge, I'm, I'm good here. If we didn't see any more of this in the Bible than just what we see in the Gospels, I'd say, well, maybe that was just for their time. Listen to this. Revelation, this, we'll finish here. Revelation 3, the last book of the Bible. Jesus says this to the church at Laodicea. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Vomit is the literal word. For you say, I'm rich. I've prospered. And I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you, Jesus says to this church, to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Keep in mind, He's talking to a church. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, Jesus says to this church, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Repent. Now, later, tomorrow, Thursday, next Sunday, 
until we see Jesus face to face, repent. You're saying, well, what's that mean? It means constantly change the way you're thinking. Let your sins be dealt with. Let Jesus reprove and rebuke and change so that we might be zealous and repent. Change the way we think. Open the door. Let Jesus in. That's a good idea, by the way, if you're a church. You might want to let Jesus in. But they were stuck somewhere where they were saying, I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing. May it never be in our lives. May it never be where we think we've arrived and we don't need anything else. Repent. Rejoice. Revolt. And repent. Let's pray. God, I don't know why you fool with any of us, but you do. But you do. Help us to see, help us to have ears to hear, God, what you're doing in our lives, individually, in our life corporately, in the life of the church, so that we might be those who are constantly rejoicing, who are constantly revolting, and who are constantly repenting. And God, we need your Spirit's help to do this. In and of ourselves, we think that we're rich. We we think that we've prospered. We think that we need nothing. We've arrived. We're all right. We're all right. God's happy with us. And because of who Christ is, you are. You're satisfied with us. And you call us to something more. By the power of your Holy Spirit, God, help us to have ears to hear the better word that you've spoken over our lives. You have broken the power of my sin. The curse I've lived in has been reversed. The blood of Jesus is my provision and you have spoken a better word. No condemnation. I am free. The blood of Jesus speaks for me. The lamb was slain and now I can sing a better word. Give us ears to hear it, God. And may we be those who are constantly, consistently changing so that we may rejoice and revolt and repent in this world that you've created and that you will destroy and create again. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would please stand and receive an odd benediction. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And all God's people said, Amen. Stay neat with us if you can.